be in no doubt. It is time for a change and we are it. Thank you. I mean, it is time for a change. You aren't it though. They've been in power 13 years. It was an incredibly surreal conference speech from Rishi Sunak, constantly saying basically how, how terrible government has been, how terrible the country is, how we need a huge change and what and how to get change, we should vote for the same party that have been in power for 13 years. Didn't really make any sense. And we're going to be dissecting the whole speech. I'll join. I'll be joined um, later by Dahlia Gabriel. Before that, um, we'll be speaking to a train expert, because obviously that was one of the big announcements today. Um, some other talking points from the speech. The Tories seem to hate themselves. Um, and one Conservative did get held up or called out for the amount of lies that the Conservatives have said at this conference. Also, um, it wasn't Rishi Sunak that gave the most unhinged speech at Tory conference today. We'll show you who did. Before we get going, though, we should mention we are currently running a fundraiser and we're trying to get Navarra Media fit and ready for 2024 because we know it's going to be such a crucial year um, in politics in this year with a general election coming up. We're pretty sure that most of the mainstream media are going to ignore a lot of the issues you care about. So we want to make sure we are well prepared to cover them properly. And we are looking for 5,000 um, new supporters. Um, if you are already one of our supporters, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. If not, please do consider going to navaramedia.com forward slash support. Um, the link to that site is in the description. First story, the Conservative Party conference has been dominated by the question of whether or not Rishi Sunak will cancel the leg of HS2 planned to go from Birmingham to Manchester. In today's speech, we finally got our answer. HS2 is the ultimate example of the old consensus. The result is a project whose costs have more than doubled, which has been repeatedly delayed, and it is not scheduled to reach here in Manchester for almost two decades, and for which the economic case has massively been weakened with the changes to business travel post-COVID. I say to those who backed the project in the first place, the facts have changed. And the right thing to do when the facts change is to have the courage to change direction. I am ending this long running saga. I am cancelling the rest of the HS2 project. It's very surreal, isn't it? Seeing someone standing at a podium that says long-term decisions for a brighter future and then saying, well, we can't invest in that. It's not going to take 20 years until it's completed. Right, the whole point of long term is you're willing to invest in stuff that won't pay off for a while. Um, Sunak has, of course, said that the £36 billion saved by cancelling HS2 beyond Birmingham will all be reinvested in transport in the North, the Midlands and the rest of the UK outside of London. And he said this would be the result. With our new network North, you will be able to get from Manchester to the new station in Bradford in 30 minutes. Sheffield in 42 minutes and to Hull in 84 minutes on a fully electrified line. We'll protect the 12 billion pounds to link up Manchester and Liverpool as planned and we'll engage with local leaders on how best to deliver that scheme. We'll build the Midlands Rail Hub connecting 50 different stations. We'll help Andy Street extend the West Midlands Metro. We'll build the Leeds Tram. We'll electrify the North Wales Main Line. Upgrade the A1, the A2, the A5, the M6. We'll connect our union with the A75, boosting links between Scotland and Northern Ireland. We'll fund 
We will fund the Shipley Bypass, the Blythe Relief Road, and deliver 70 other road schemes. We will resurface roads across the country. We'll bring back the Don Valley Line. We will upgrade the Energy Coastline between Carlisle, Workington, and Barrow. Build, build hundreds, build hundreds of other schemes, and keep the two pound bus fare across the whole country. There was a lot of debate on, on Twitter about which of those announcements had already been made or whether they were genuinely new. Interestingly, in the sort of broader document um, about the plans, it turns out that they have re-announced some things which already exist. So he's promised there will now be a Metrolink to Manchester Airport, which was in fact opened in 2014. Um, so whether or not we can, we can take it as a given that these are genuinely new announcements, definitely up for debate. Um, it is a long list of transport improvements. So if we do take him at his word. Um, someone who's not sure is Andy Burnham. He's Greater Manchester Mayor. He said this today. I don't see how you can take a plan that goes beyond the life of any individual government or it goes beyond the interests of any one political party, given it goes all the way through the country, how you can kind of take that plan and basically tear it up at a party conference. Um, surely this should be done uh, on a cross-party consultative basis, but we have not been consulted uh, this week, a week when our city has done its best to play host uh, to, to the government. And you may remember uh, almost 10 years ago, George Osborne came to, I think it was the building just beyond, uh, beyond here, to kind of tap into that spirit that the uh, north of England had in the 19th century of, of pioneering and bringing new developments to the world, to say that he would bring forward a northern a northern powerhouse that would be all about that ambition again for Britain, building uh, new north-south lines with HS2, east-west with HS3, as he called it then, but obviously became northern powerhouse rail, new platforms at Piccadilly, you name it, we were, we were getting it all. It's hard not to feel that 10 years on from that uh, announcement, uh, the Conservative Party have not shown the, the, the courage, the conviction or the capability to turn those statements into into reality to the great frustration of, of people here so I think there's a couple of things to note uh, about what Andy Burnham said there. So first, sort of the undemocratic nature of of this decision. I mean, Rishi Sunak was never elected by anyone. He's basically a lame duck prime minister. All the polls predict he will be kicked out of the next general election, which will be in a year's time, right? Potentially sooner, right? But he has now made a, a massive long-term decision that's going to affect the whole of the country. And what's worse, so I saw sort of after the speech, the government apparently have already started selling off some of the land that was uh, that was bought via compulsory purchase order to um, extend HS2 up to Manchester. So they're sort of very proactively making it impossible for any future democratically elected government with a mandate to reverse this stuff, which seems to me pretty unforgivable. The other thing to mention there is that this whole idea of a northern powerhouse of sort of uh, deprioritizing um, north-south routes and sort of making sure that north to north routes are are dramatically improved. That's not exactly new. They've been the north of England has been promised Northern Powerhouse Rail for a decade now. That wasn't even included in this speech. So he didn't say we're going to cancel HS2 and bring in Northern Powerhouse Rail. It was sort of a an odd lot of sort of different um, improvements here and there. No big network for the north. The Tory mayor of the West Midlands, Andy Street, had signalled before the speech that he might resign if the second part of HS2 was cancelled. This is what he said after the speech. So obviously I'm very disappointed that he uh, announced that today. As you know, I fought for it to be maintained, think fought hard valiantly on behalf of my region. So of course disappointed. But 
remember the line is going to run from Euston to Hansacre, where it will join the West Coast Main Line. So compared to what could have happened, this is a good compromise position. And you've been in to see the Prime Minister yesterday to lobby him right up until the last minute. Yes, I had, because as, as I implied, I really did believe that it is the right thing to do to have a line that provides a spine through the whole of the country and also ask him to consider the offer for the private sector to think about how we deliver this well. And you'll have heard the Prime Minister say today, and this is an important thing that he said, that he would welcome working with me on improving those further links between Birmingham and Manchester. So that's a good thing to be offered today. We've seen this before, haven't we? A conservative who's saying how they're going to rebel. Um, they might even resign. Then when push comes to shove, they sort of accept some crumbs. Oh, he's going to consider offers from the private sector. Seriously, you got bought off by someone saying they're going to consider something? Bit of a joke, right? But he's not resigning anyway. He, he, he seems to value um, his career within the Conservative Party more than um, the second leg of HS2. Um, HS2, it is worth noting, is unlikely to have massive electoral consequences on either side for anyone. According to the most recent polling, 26% of people neither supported nor opposed HS2, so were somewhat indifferent. 20% um, strongly opposed it, only 8% strongly supported it. I think about 18% would have supported it, but not strongly. So you can see this isn't really an issue that's massively um, dividing the country. Um, what will the announcement actually mean for the long-term future of transport in Britain, though? I'm joined now by Conrad Landin, editor of The New Internationalist, who also writes regularly for Rail Magazine and Rail Review on the politics and history of the railways. And we found ourselves a rail nerd for tonight's show. So thank you so much for joining us. What do you make of Sunak's announcements today? It's not especially surprising, uh, not only thanks to the uh, plethora of trails and uh, speculation that's come over the past couple of weeks, but also because HS2 has already been repeatedly uh, stripped back on a number of occasions. It was originally also uh, due to have an eastern leg, which would go to Leeds. Uh, we've also seen the scrapping of the Goldbourne link to the West Coast mainline uh, just south of Wigan. And I think the uh, question that many people are asking now is, uh, how do we know that Euston is safe either? That's the um, connection between Old Oak Common, where the current phase is due to end and uh, in the south, and uh, London Euston, uh, which has been completely, uh, the area around it has been ripped up and lots of things have already uh, been demolished so that HS2 uh, can connect to there. But um, the government has repeatedly said that the uh, various parts of the line are safe before scrapping them. Uh, and so uh, Rishi Sunak's promise that it will go to central London um, isn't worth the paper it's written on at this point. And the, uh, his government seems quite determined to strip out the benefits of the project while baking in the costs. On the face of it, Rishi Sunak's logic doesn't seem to be completely bizarre. So you might listen to this thing. He said what he's going to do is going to defund this sort of big um, headline infrastructure project and he's going to redistribute that money into sort of projects which might not make headlines. They might not be internationally renowned, um, but people actually care more about their local bus services or their local train services than they do about high-speed intercity rail. Um, is there anything to that argument? Well, you touched on uh, the commentary around various parts of his announcement being already, uh, already in the pipeline. 
and you said uh, that it's certainly up for debate. I don't think it is up for debate. Uh, the projects um, that the Conservatives are supposedly redirecting funding to are actually projects for which there is ex- existing funding. Uh, there's not new money going into those projects. And uh, the money that was supposed to be going on the Manchester leg would be uh, from borrowing uh, further down the line. So that money isn't available yet to be redeployed. So that investment is just going to be lost. Uh, Secondly, the whole point of HS2, uh, from the perspective of the rail industry at least, is to free up capacity on the existing network. So um, it's not been communicated very well. But HS2, the purpose of it was never simply about uh, getting improved speeds between London, Birmingham and Manchester. But it was, in fact, about uh, uh, adding capacity for local services and uh, freight services on the current network uh, by freeing up that capacity, moving high speed passenger traffic onto a new line. Um, It's uh, not been very uh, communicated very well and the debate has got very uh, entrenched on both sides but there are huge benefits to um, in terms of not not just for passengers traveling into city but uh, for the rail network at large which look like they're going to be lost while um, a lot of money has already been spent. And Rishi Sunak at this point looks a bit like a lame duck Prime Minister. I mean, he's hoping that some of the announcements here will turn it around for him, but the odds are Labour will win the next general election. I mean, if they do, what's the chances that they can just say, actually, you know, we've looked at the sums again, let's do HS2, let's do the whole plan, let's go to Manchester, they might even say, let's go to Leeds. I mean, can can you see that happening? It's very hard to say at the moment, because uh, the only thing that's been clear uh, from the Labour Party in terms of rail policy is that there's been significant conflict within the front bench about how to deal with the railways uh, under a Labour government. Uh, We saw this last year with Louise Haig, uh, the Shadow Transport Secretary, being undermined by both Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer um, when both of them suggested that Labour was no longer committing committing to public operation of the railways. And then uh, that was uh, rode back upon. then uh, this time last year, the um, Louise Hay, in terms of HS2, was saying uh, that Labour will build, and I quote, HS2 in full. Uh, but just last month, we then had Pat McFadden uh, going on the airwaves saying that while Labour w- wants to see uh, the railway being built, it also must, and this is uh, what he said exactly, look at the cost of everything we do. So he was uh, pouring doubt on the idea of uh, delivering it in full. Louise Haig then came out and said the position was once again HS2 in full. Um, But that wasn't in her response to Sunak's speech today. Um, She criticised the announcement very forcefully, but didn't talk at all about what Labour would do um, if it was uh, elected uh, in an election next year. Uh, Then, lo and behold, uh, after the speech, Pat McFadden pops up again. And he says, and I quote, we're going to have to look at the numbers and see what we inherit when the election comes. Well, I mean, you know, there's a famous miners slogan that the past we inherit and the future we build. But the message from Labour right now seems to be that we inherit the future as well. And this kind of positioning really allows the Conservatives to get away with these disastrous decisions, because as soon as you have another party that's likely to get into government soon, saying uh, it um, will do something different, 
that can have a significant impact on how industry responds. So in this case, we're not just talking about the rail industry, but we're also talking about uh, construction, civil engineering, the business lobbies in Birmingham and Manchester. And it's also going to have an impact uh, even more crucially on how Whitehall responds, how the civil service responds, the Department for Transport. And if you say, oh, well, uh, we're going to have to wait and see about that, even if you do decide to pick it up once you're in government, it's going to be a lot more costly. In my introduction, I sort of said you you write about the histories of railways. I suppose, I just want to know, have we always been this bad at it? Has it always been this disastrous any time we planned some kind of major infrastructure? Or were we a bit better at this before? Rail infrastructure projects do have a record of being uh, delivered um, late and over budget. Um, There's not an easy comparison in recent terms um, for HS2. The most relevant one would probably be Crossrail or HS1, though they're quite different um, in some ways. HS1, which is the um, high-speed rail link to the Channel Tunnel, uh, which goes from St Pancras uh, to uh, Folkestone, um, had plenty of its own issues. But crucially, once it was approved, it wasn't lacking in political will. And um, uh, the Channel Tunnel Rail Link Act was passed by Parliament in 1996, and the first section was opened by 2023 and the second section in 2007. And that seems, uh, you know, drastically on time and uh, sort of in uh, a controlled fashion compared with what we're seeing for um, HS2, where even the um, uh, Old Oak Common to Birmingham section um, is... We're not. We're looking at 2030 earliest, and Euston later than that, and now uh, so many of the other sections being cancelled altogether. Let's turn to the rest of Sunak's speech because there were some other big policy announcements. Although you can never really um, believe whether or not they're going to happen, but in any case, this was the first. People take up cigarettes when they're young. Four in five smokers have started by the time they're 20. Later, the vast majority try to quit, but many fail because they're addicted and they wish they had never taken up the habit in the first place. Now, if we could break that cycle, if we could stop the start, then we would be on our way to ending the biggest cause of preventable death and disease in our country. So I propose that in future, we raise the smoking age by one year every year. That means a 14-year-old That means a 14-year-old today will never legally be sold a cigarette and that they and their generation can grow up smoke-free. I don't believe it would be fair to take away the rights of anyone to smoke who currently does so. And the vote on this in Parliament will be a free vote, as the bar on smoking in public places was and raising the smoking age to 18 was. There will be no government whip. It is a matter of conscience. Very strange that it's a matter of conscience. You had all those votes on, on whether to go to war. You've got votes on austerity, and they're not a matter of conscience, but whether or not you should ban smoking is, it seems somewhat bizarre. Um, in any case, it's, it's somewhat hard to criticise a move that could eventually save around 80,000 lives a year, one in four people who die from cancer, it's related to smoking. Um, the structure of the proposal does have some strange consequences. Though at some point, 35-year-olds will need ID to buy cigarettes, but 36-year-olds 
will be fine. I saw a good joke on, on Twitter today about a 79-year-old having to get their 80-year-old friend to go and buy them a packet of, of Benson and Hedges. Hedges sorry. Um, interestingly, it's exactly the same as the policy that New Zealand introduced in the last months of Jacinda Ardern's premiership in 2021. Um, at the time, that didn't go down well with Tory-supporting British media. Zoe Strimple wrote this in The Telegraph. Even as a non-smoker, I think New Zealand is wrong to ban a generation from smoking. Um, she says it's a cautionary tale for us. Also on New Zealand, the Daily Mail ran with this. How Jacinda Ardern's smoking ban is a war on tobacconists and will force 7,500 businesses to find a new way of making money amid fears the tobacco black market will explode. Quick off the mark this time around. The Spectator has already published this article on Sunak's announcement. Sunak's smoking ban is a terrible policy. Um, from Andrew Tettenborn. I'm joined now by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, what do you make of this announcement on smoking? I actually think it's not a super easy question. I mean, I'm firstly really surprised that Rishi Sunak made this announcement. It kind of jars against a lot of the tendencies within the Conservative Party. I mean, historically, the Conservatives, the main opposition from things that curtail big tobacco have been opposed by at least parts of the Conservative Party. So whether we're talking about for example, bans on ad tobacco adverts, whether we're talking about the, in the ban on indoor smoking. These have historically been oppo had opposition within the Conservative Party because the tobacco industry is a big and lucrative industry. So, of course, the Conservatives will present their interests. But also there is a kind of personal liberty thing here uh, where I think generally I think of Conservatives as being wary of things that infringe on personal liberty only when it is something that doesn't concern specifically working class or black and brown people. Whereas smoking is kind of a thing that is a cross set of a, a cross section of society. And I feel like normally with those kind of things, they get very, they're very reluctant to take on things that in, are seen to infringe on that kind of personal liberty when it if, impacts people who aren't working class or black or brown or migrants or trans people or queer people. Um, basically, that this could criminalise the individual choices of wealthy white men. I'm surprised that they would go down that, that road. In terms of my personal opinion, I think it's really, really difficult because on the one hand, I absolutely believe that it is a good thing that you know, smoking has become less accessible. I think things like taking it off of the shelves in supermarkets, certainly banning advertising. I also definitely think banning indoor smoking has all, you know, that it's in, the proof is in the pudding. The data shows that things like admissions of children having asthma has declined, heart disease and heart attacks have declined, smoking related illnesses have declined. And that that is kind of undeniable. But I also do generally have an approach that is like, generally, I'm a bit wary of tackling problems just by banning them, especially when you can have a kind of under, it can just force things underground. You know, we see this, for example, um, with weed, with cannabis. And I mean, I would argue that cannabis, like weed is safer than smoking, um, tobacco, cigarettes, but generally criminalization leads to the criminalization of people, which generally I'm not massively in favor of. But I also do think that, you know, there is really no social benefit to smoking and, and curtailing it is certainly a good thing. But I would rather go through the kind of indirect behavior curtailment that we have seen work quite well. I think that generally is, is more 
down my street and what I would probably prefer. But then again, I would also really like to see the outcomes in New Zealand. I would really like to see, you know, I mean, I think it came into effect this year. So we won't know for sure what the impacts of that are. But I would love to see in sort of five years, for example, you know, has this black market economy emerged? Have people been criminalized as a result of this ban? Um, I would really like to see the data. I think it's a good experiment, but I'm just really surprised that it's coming from the Conservative Party, especially because this doesn't seem like anything like a policy that any segment of society is particularly deeply invested in. And if anything, it might actually alienate some of their voting base. My suspicion on this, actually, maybe it's a bit conspiratorial, but I know that Sunak is sort of desperately trying to find a way where he can offer some tax cuts before the next general election. And he wants the Office for Budget Responsibility to say, you know, we've got this fiscal room, which means you can cut taxes. Now, as far as I understand, if we dramatically decrease smoking in society, that will save the NHS quite a lot of money. So I'm wondering if the reason he wants to announce this is so he can say, well, this means we're going to save four billion a year. I'm picking up, you know, I'm picking numbers um, out of thin air. But for the purposes of this example, I'm going to save four billion pounds a year um, on the treatment that we would normally give to cancer patients who've, who've been smoking. Now um, we can use that money to fund some tax cuts. I, I'm wondering if that's what's going on here, but just a suspicion of mine. And let's move on to a different policy area because Sunak also announced new plans for education. Technical education is not given the respect it deserves. Students don't spend enough time in the classroom. A quarter of our children leave education without the basic literacy and numeracy they need to fulfill their potential. And our students study too narrow a range of subjects. Today, I am changing all of that, pulling one of the biggest levers we have to change the direction of our country. We will introduce the new rigorous, knowledge-rich, advanced British standard, which will bring together A-levels and T-levels into a new single qualification for our school levers. First, this will finally deliver on the promise of parity of esteem between academic and technical education, because all students will sit the advanced British standard. Second, we will raise the floor, ensuring that our children leave school literate and numerate, because with the advanced British standard, all students will study some form of maths and English to 18 with extra help for those who struggle most in our country no child should be left behind. So what's being pitched here is a baccalaureate-style qualification, like what they have in France and many other parts of the world. I mean, it's not a new plan for education. In 2004, the Tomlinson Report into the British education system made a similar proposal, but Tony Blair back then decided not to take it up. Under Sunak's proposed reform, students aged 16 to 19 would typically study five subjects rather than three. These could include a mix of academic and technical subjects, but all would have some degree of education to 18 in maths and English. And he also said that in order to keep the quality of the qualifications as high as A-levels currently are, post-16 students would have to spend 15% more time in the classroom. Now, clearly, that has to mean more teachers. Here's Sunak again. Our new plan will require more teachers in the coming years. So I can announce today that in order to attract and retain more teachers, those who teach key subjects in schools and for the first time 
in our further education colleges too will receive special bonuses of up to £30,000 tax-free over the first five years of their career. Our teachers... <clears throat> our teachers do one of the most valuable jobs in our society, and we should reward them for that. What about keeping the existing teachers, right? I think last year, 9% of teenage teachers sorry, left the profession, not through retirement. So they're fairly unhappy. You can talk about employing new ones. What about keeping the existing ones? Again, right, it's, it, is, it is hard to criticize a plan to reward teachers properly, but it's a little odd And when it comes after a year of strikes with the government arguing they don't have the money to raise teachers' salaries. Um, a policy document published as Sunak's speech ended has a little more detail. The government is promising £600 million over the first two years of the reforms. As Sunak said in that clip, there will be £6,000 per year tax-free bonuses for new teachers to teach shortage subjects in FE schools and disadvantaged schools. He's also promising £150 million per year to provide extra support for qualifying students who need to retake their maths GCSEs. So some vision there from the Prime Minister. But being a Tory conference, it had to be sandwiched between a bit of red meat. This was Sunak on welfare reform. We must end the national scandal where our benefit system declares that more than two million people of working age are incapable of actually doing any. That's not conservative. That's not compassionate. That must change. In 2011, one in five of those doing a work capability assessment were deemed unfit to work. But the latest figure now stands at 65%. Are people three times sicker today than they were a decade ago? No, of course not. It's not good for our economy. It's not fair on taxpayers who have to pick up the bill. And it's a tragedy for those two million people being written off. I refuse to accept this, and that is why we are going to change the rules so that those who can work, do work. So let's get this straight. In 2011, just 20% of people doing work capability assessments were judged unfit to work. In 2023, it's 65%. But Sunak says it's not because more people are ill. So the implication is that the system isn't working. Remind me who's been running it. Um, not that more people should be found unfit to work, we should say. And the major contributor to an increase in people becoming economically inactive due to ill health, of course, isn't people scamming the system. It's the basic fact of demographic change. A growing number of older people also means a growing number of people with long-term health problems. And the pandemic didn't help either. This graph from the House of Commons Library shows that economic inactivity due to long-term illness increased over all age groups through the pandemic. But as you can see in the right-hand graph, it grew the most amongst those aged 50 to 64. That's also the age group with the largest number of people who can't work due to bad health at around 1.4 million in September 2022. Another factor is that people will be off sick for longer when they can't get the medical treatment they need. This graph shows just how badly the Tories have mismanaged the NHS since they came to power in 2010, compared to then three times as many people are waiting for treatment. Is it really a surprise that there also might be three times as many people unable to work? 
Dali, we've got an announcement on education, an announcement on on benefits. It's not really an announcement, it's just an attack. It's just a swipe um, at people um, on out-of-work benefits. But what do you make of these? Yeah, so I mean, on the education one, again, I found it a little bit strange because on the one hand, I I do think that in Britain, we specialize too early in our education system. So theoretically, I actually wouldn't oppose a a further education system that allowed people to do more subjects until a later point. I also think the same thing for our higher education system. I would love to see like a liberal arts style education where you can stay quite general for a long time and then you specialize over time. Um, So in theory, again, I wouldn't really oppose a kind of baccalaureate style uh, education system. And of course, anything that Uh, improves the conditions of teachers I would be in support of I would say that the the approach that he has of a saying that this support is only going to be for for teachers in particular subjects is very ideological we know that the conservative party has basically waged a war on humanities and social science education, particularly for working class students. They believe that the humanities, you know, studying history, English, these kinds of degrees should only be reserved for the very wealthy. Um, And so I worry if there's a little bit of, if this is kind of a Trojan horse for that to sort of say that we'll only really fund, you know, maths education and science education because that's the more easily commodifiable kind of education in their view. Um, And I also think that, it's not really a holistic look at our education system that sees that, yes, worker wages need to be improved across the board, across subjects, but also there is just actively less funding in the infrastructure of our education and all of the parallel services that go alongside um, the kind of core education work that helps to improve outcomes. You know, we have seen in the past in the past 10 years, we have seen the steepest decline in per pupil funding um, over the past 40 years. And so, again, it just seems very odd to me. You know, we are experiencing multiple crises, including in our education system, of funding, of staff retention, um, of even the, the actual buildings that our kids are being taught in crumbling. And yet, it doesn't strike me that sort of the the idea of allowing people to do five A-level style type subjects instead of three is really at the top of everyone's priority list, even if in theory we might agree with it. So again, it just seems to be tackling the issue from a slight, an, a, an angle that basically allows them to do very little to tackle the core issue um, of underfunding and lack of infrastructure in our education system, as well as lack of staff retention. Uh, the welfare stuff, it's just classic Tory nonsense. Um, You know, the idea that the number of people so-called scamming the benefit system at a time when the benefit system is at its most scarce, its most unlivable, and its most inaccessible is honestly laughable. Um, This idea that that we can have 90 people a month dying whilst waiting to be certified as unfit to work. And yet somehow this system is so easy to quote unquote scam. It's ridiculous. I think your analysis of why there are more people who are declared unfit to work 
is completely right. There's so many reasons for it. First of all, you obviously have the COVID pandemic. You have an aging population. I would also add to that that a huge number of people who might not themselves be elderly um, but are caring, are having to leave work in order to care for their elderly relatives because our care system is so unaffordable and unavailable, that's also a big driver of people not being able to work. Um, you know, 600 people a day leave the waged workforce in order to do unpaid care work for their loved ones. So that is also a reason for economic inactivity. Now, I don't necessarily believe it's a bad thing to have people caring. I think that, you know, I'm carers should be much more looked after and that is real work and that's very important work but if we're going by the terms of the conservatives when you cripple the care system obviously people have to pick up the slack and that takes them away from the waged economy um so there's there's those issues there's also the fact that work itself has changed so before you know, when you had more standard employment, you had provisions for people who might have, you know, mitigating issues or for disabled people because you had better sick pay, you had better provisions, you had more security in a job that ultimately makes work more accessible for more people. Yet now you have this increase in zero hours contracts, in fractional work, in work that requires you to basically be pulled in at any minute. And that is much harder for someone who has a chronic illness or is disabled in some form to participate in that kind of work when you have sort of very irregular forms of work. So there's so many clear systemic reasons why we have greater economic inactivity right now. And I can guarantee you that the reason that they're not one of those reasons is that it's become somehow easier to get benefits. It is more difficult now than ever, than it ever has been in Britain's recent history to find the support you need if you are disabled or if you have caring responsibilities. We've said the comments on sort of people who are out of work are grim. They are predictable, though. We've, we, we've heard that really over the past 13 years when it comes to Tory party conferences. The next clip we're going to show you is somewhat new in its grimness. Um, take a look. It also shouldn't be controversial for parents to know what their children are being taught in school about relationships. Patients should know when hospitals are talking about men or women. And we shouldn't get bullied into believing that people can be any sex they want to be. They can't. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. That's just common sense. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. That's just common sense. I mean, I suppose in a way it's just so meaningless because you say it like that. Well, where does a trans man fit in that? Where does a trans woman fit in that? It's, it's unclear from that speech. But I mean, obviously, there's some massive dog whistles there, which is to say that basically trans people are all making it up. That seems to be the position which is being sort of touted. Um, at the front of Tory party conference to, you know, rapturous applause. This is what people really want to hear in that conference hall. Um, I said it's somewhat new, um, this sort of targeting of trans people in um, a, a leader's speech at Tory party conference. This kind of bigotry, though, isn't. This was Maggie Thatcher's conference speech in 1987. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Dahlia, obviously, um, you know, we look back at that clip from Margaret Thatcher and I think, you know, most people in society recognise that was wrong, what she said. Do you think we'll be in a similar situation with Rishi Sunak's speech in, in 20 years' time? Well, hopefully five years' time, let's see. Yeah, I mean, I really hope that we don't have to wait 20 years for trans people to be treated with respect and dignity by our politicians. 
I think it is absolutely despicable um, that at a time when women in this country are on a sinking ship, that the Conservative Party is focusing their energy on getting us to fight one another on the bottom deck. Because this, that we are in a very, the, the, the impact of the Conservative crisis is very gendered. 86% of the burden of austerity is shouldered by women. It's because women are the people who are working in the public sector, which has seen excessive pay freezes in professions like teaching and nursing. We are seeing, you know, domestic violence uh, services being shut down, lack of public su public service support means that women are more likely to stay in abusive relationships. We are seeing women more likely to take on the caring responsibilities that are basically being abandoned by the state. And at a time when you see these multiple crises that are absolutely gendered, you have a situation where the Conservative Party are trying to single out and stigmatize one particular kind of woman and get other women to gang up on them. Because let's be real, this kind of amount of scrutiny and visibility that trans women who make up a very small number of the population, the amount of scrutiny that they're under is not an organic scrutiny. It is a produced one. Um, in, you know, between 2020 and 2022, 120 trusts were asked, have you had any complaints from cis women about trans women patients? And they had zero. There were zero complaints between 2020 and 2022 of cis women in, in healthcare wards complaining about the fact that a trans woman was also being treated on their ward. So this isn't an organic concern. The organic concerns that women have are about the lack of public housing, are about the state of the education that their children are in, are about you know the lack of domestic violence services. And yet we are being told that the real risk is because one tiny group of women want to do what we all want to do, which is to get on with our lives and to have a reliable healthcare system, to have a reliable education system, to have a good housing system and just get on with their lives. But what we are seeing, and it's ex an exact parallel of that speech by Maggie Thatcher and an exact parallel of what we saw at the height of the gay panic, which is to essentially make life and doing doing just the ordinary parts of life, like seeking healthcare, like getting housing, like getting a job, going to the bathroom, to be so hostile that essentially it's trying to force queer people, in this case trans people, into the closet to stop them publicly existing. It kind of reminds me of the hostile environment in terms of this idea of we want to make life so unlivable for you that you try almost cease to exist. It's like a hostile environment for trans people. And that is the goal. And that's why, you know, a lot of people argue that transphobia is a distraction, you know, oh, it's just the Conservatives distracting from their failure. And it surely is a distraction. But I think it's more than that. I actually think it's also about producing a very particular kind of authoritarianism. Because if the government is able to successfully exercise power in something as, as intimate and everyday as, you know, a person's relationship to their gender, as, you know, the bathrooms that people use, the hospital wards that people are treated on, then really they can exercise power in any arena of our life. So I really think that, yes, it's distraction from the absolute, 
you know, sinking ship that women are on in this country and trying to distract from all of that by pointing our finger at one particular kind of woman. But it's also about normalizing this idea that the government can regulate certain human beings out of existence. Let's go on to our next story. The Tories really do hate themselves, or at least that's the message coming from their party conference. This was a key part of Rishi Sunak's speech. Politics doesn't work the way it should. We've had 30 years of a political system which incentivizes the easy decision, not the right one. 30 years of vested interests standing in the way of change. 30 years of rhetorical ambition which achieves little more than a short-term headline. And why? Because our political system is too focused on short-term advantage, not long-term success. Politicians spent more time campaigning for change than actually delivering it. It doesn't have to be this way. I won't be this way. Conference, our mission is to fundamentally change our country. That was the least inspiring clarion call for change I think I've ever heard. But aside from the somewhat bland delivery, the real issue is this. You've been in power for 13 years. And of the past 30 years, which was the period you referenced, you've been in power for 17 of them. So if there's a problem, you're just trashing your own record. Now, you might say this is just what governments sound like when they run out of steam, they've been in power too long, they're tired. It wasn't always this way, though. Some parties, after they've been in government for 13 years, are actually proud of their record. This is Gordon Brown in his final conference speech as Prime Minister. If anyone says that to fight doesn't get you anywhere, that politics can't make a difference, that all parties are the same, then look at what we have achieved together since 1997. The winter fuel allowance, the shortest waiting times in history, crime down by a third, the creation of Sure Start, the cancer guarantee, record results in schools, more students than ever, the Disability Discrimination Act, devolution, civil partnerships, peace in Northern Ireland, the social chapter, half a million children out of poverty, maternity pay, fraternity leave, child benefit at record levels, the minimum wage, the ban on cluster bombs, the cancelling of debt, the trebling of aid, the first ever Climate Change Act. That's the Britain we've been building together. That's the change we choose. Now, obviously, he didn't mention destabilizing numerous states in the Middle East. But the point, which is sort of unavoidable there, is that New Labour, they did achieve some stuff. They also did a bunch of stuff very badly, but they did achieve some stuff. The Conservatives, after 13 years of power, everyone who stood up at this conference has just said, we're really shit. We're really shit. Politics sucks. The economy sucks. Vote for change, which, by the way, is us. It's completely, completely bizarre. And I do think you sort of see, you know, again, say what you like about Gordon Brown, some mistakes, I'm sure, but he he was someone who believed in stuff and did try and get stuff done. Rishi Sunak stands up there. just like, what does he believe in? What is driving this man? Like, it's so unclear. What What does he want? Like, Gordon Brown, I think, very obviously did actually care about bringing people out of poverty. You can sort of quibble over whether he did it the right way. He was clearly too lax when it came to sort of the regulation of the banks. He probably should have been more proactive when it came to blocking a war in Iraq. I don't know what his particular personal position was. He, he wasn't a driver of it, but he was definitely, um, is, is in some way culpable. But he believed in stuff. Rishi Sunak, this current lot, they don't believe in anything. They've just been sort of there for 13 years because they quite enjoy the idea of having power and they've done nothing with it whatsoever apart from cause arbitrary misery here and there. You know, that, that is the legacy of 13 years of Tory rule. 
Let's go straight to our next story. The Tories don't have a record to brag about at their conference, so they've taken to making things up. And on Newsnight, Victoria Derbyshire would not let Tory Minister Michelle Donnellan get away with it. In your speech today, you said something that really struck me. You said, we are the party of facts. I wonder if I could ask you to just have a little look at this, please. The government diktat to sort your rubbish into seven different bins. What is sinister and what we shouldn't tolerate is the idea that local councils can decide how often you go to the shops. It's no wonder that Labour seems so relaxed about taxing meat. How can you be the party of facts when none of that is true? But we are the party that stands up for facts. My announcement today... I'm going to pause you right there. None of those three things are true. Well, well, it certainly is true. There are a lot of people that have been calling for, for, for a meat taxation. And is this Lab- government no, that have been no, stemming that I'm not, not going to let this go. There was never a proposal to use seven bins. We can't find any council that wants to decide how often people can go to shops. And Labour have never proposed taxing meat. They are untruths. They are fiction. They are completely and utterly made up. And it's really disrespectful to voters. We are, I, I genuinely believe, we are the party of facts I've and evidence. I've just given you three pieces of fiction that members of your party have said in the last couple of weeks. Well, I've heard members of the Labour Party advocating for those things. and It was never a Labour policy, that, come on. That, that wasn't the words that were used there. It, and I have heard members of the Labour Party advocating for those things and advocating for their party to campaign on those areas. Is, is, this, how, is this how desperate the Conservative Party is now? You're making up stuff. I'm sure she was making up the idea of, of hearing Labour Party members saying that. No, and that's not because I think that there are Labour Party members. I'm sure there would be a Labour Party member that if you asked them, should we have seven bins, they might say maybe. But there's definitely not a campaign for seven bins going on in the Labour Party, right? I don't know how Michelle Donnellan would have just come across someone who was saying, we should definitely have seven bins in every household. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's clearly a lie. Dahlia, I always get nervous, actually, sort of watching clips like this because... Clearly, these are politicians who are lying, and it's very important they get called out for it by journalists. And Victoria Derbyshire, I think, did a very good job there. Um, but it, it, it does just always remind me of the Brexit campaign. And obviously, you know, part of Vote Leave's strategy was just to tell lies. And um, I said, tell lies because it doesn't, you know, people don't really judge us too harshly for doing it. And it means that the issues that we want to be on the top of the news agenda will stay on the top of the news agenda because mm. we're creating controversies. I don't have a strong opinion here. I don't know what what I think. Um, I, I'm not saying Victoria Derbyshire has fallen into their trap. I'm just saying I feel uneasy. Um, where do you sit when it comes to the Conservatives lying? Is it genuinely a weakness for them? No, I completely agree that it, it's a strategy. And I actually think that it's not a strategy to try and win votes or it's not with the intention of having a shot at winning the next election. I think they've pretty much probably given up on that. I think actually they're preparing for how they are going to conduct themselves under a Labour government, which is to essentially just throw shit at the wall and see what sticks and to create. And you can see really in the Conservative Party conference, the mirror image of the Britain that they have tried to create. It's a Britain that's paranoid, that's delusional, that is mean, that is reactionary. And I think that they are looking to the future and thinking, what are, what presence are we going to have in order to build power over what will very likely be a Labour government? Um, and my worry is that those next five years, you know, when if 
if Labour win the next election, which obviously we are expecting them to, that those five years will be spent fomenting this conspiratorial thinking, because that is what we have been seeing. We have been seeing, you know, climate change policy is all a ruse to, for the government to control you. Or, you know, this idea of 15 minute cities being, again, this ruse for the government to control you or vaccines. I'm worried that this is going to be the kind of MO of the Conservatives while Labour is in power. And look, I have no problem with particularly Keir Starmer's Labour being held to, to scrutiny. Absolutely. But not from a place of complete delusion and paranoia, because I think that creates, and we saw it in the US with Trump, that can create a, you know, and we saw it as well with Suella Braverman, you know, peddling what sounded a lot like great replacement conspiracy thinking. That can lead down a very dark road and kind of unlock a genie from a bottle that you can't really put back in. And so my worry is that this is essentially them practicing that kind of technique for when the Labour Party in power. That essentially, if Labour ever tried to do anything, you know, that might be good for the climate or might be, you know, about building public infrastructure, if, you know, they try to do anything like that, the Conservatives will kind of lay this groundwork for that always to be twisted into this kind of conspiratorial framework, which, you know, knowing the way that Starmer is and knowing the way that this iteration of the Labour Party is, you know, very spineless, very lacking in principles, that they will fold at the first sight of that kind of conspiratorial thinking. So that's what that's what I think is happening here. And that's what I'm pretty worried about. Um, because I think they've made the calculation that creating particular narratives is more powerful than telling the truth when it comes to winning voters over. We've got one final story. We've seen a lot of unhinged speeches at this year's Tory party conference. Not looking to be left out, leader of the House Penny Mordaunt closed hers with this. Stand up and fight for the freedoms we have won against socialism, whether it is made of velvet or iron. Have courage and conviction because when you do, you move our countrymen, our communities and capital of all kinds to our cause. Stand up and fight because when you stand up and fight, the person beside you stands up and fights. And when our party stands up and fights, the nation stands up and fights. And when our nation stands up and fights, other nations stand up and fight, and they stand up and fight for the things upon which the entire progress of humanity depends. Freedom. That is what conservatives do. That is what this nation does. Have courage. Bring hope. Stand up and fight. Stand up and fight. Thank you, conference. <laughs> it's given four pints of lager and way too much cocaine. Um, Dali, what did you make of that? <laughs> like, so, so, so she said fight a hell of a lot of times. Like, I feel like that was a bit of a subliminal. Well, it wasn't subliminal, was it? I was, I was kind of scared watching that. <laughs> like if you bought Braveheart on AliExpress, it's like a pound shop kind of like rallying cry. I don't know what velvet socialism is. I guess it's like, is that 
the same as champagne socialism. I prefer champagne personally. But um, look, I think that I always find it so absurd when Tories, especially this iteration of the Conservative Party, stand up and talk about fighting for freedom and liberty and all of this when they are the most authoritarian government we have had in recent years. You know, we are whether it's, it's about voter ID laws, which, as we know, massively compromises the ability of working class people, of, you know, people of colour to vote, or whether it's the policing bill, which try, goes for some of our most central democratic principles, like the right to strike or the right to protest. Um, these are all part of this Conservative Party's agenda. They've gone for every civil liberty that they can get their hands on, and yet they stand up and talk about fighting for freedom. You are at no place to talk about any meaningful conception of freedom because you have attacked all of the most meaningful freedoms that we have. The only freedoms you care about enabling is the freedom to abuse minorities. That's literally the only freedom that you actually have enabled and, and facilitated. All of the meaningful freedoms that actually keep us going as a democratic society, you have tried to attack. So you really have no business, Penny Morden, talking about fighting for freedom. That is not your domain as conservatives. Very well put. Let's wrap up there on that crazy note from Penny Morden. Um, Dahlia, thank you for joining me to dissect Rishi Sunak's conference speech. It's really been a fever dream, like really a fever dream of complete unhinged behavior. But it was nice dissecting it with you, Michael. Yeah, it was his first um, conference speech as leader, hopefully his last as prime minister. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. The show will be back tomorrow, of course. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.